listeners, there is a book you absolutely have to lay hands on and read called Egg, just simple egg, a, lot, a bunch of, of cracked eggshells on the cover. And, and it's wittily subtitled, A Dozen Overtures, O-V-A-T-U-R-E-S. We're going to be talking to the author, Lizzie Stark, and what a delightful book, Lizzie. Oh, um, thanks so much. And you have so, so much many for re- Yeah, you have so many reasons for why you would write this book. Um, let's sort through some of them. Um, you had a bonding experience with your father uh, over cooking eggs. Um, it, you love some of the same people in, in the food business that, that we do, including um, Jacques Pepin and uh, uh, Kenzie. I love Kenzie. And, and he, asked, he changed our life over the um, the softball egg timing, timing. Uh, oh, and then you sure. have personal issues having to do with your own um, female eggs. So where do we start with all this? Um, I have to say that it was a real learning experience for me. As much as I thought I knew about eggs, uh, you you really it's one of these. We get a lot of books, but your book is one of the, the ones that I I put in class saying, I wish I knew all the stuff that she knows. <laughs> How did you get to, to this point? I mean, those are some of the reasons. Maybe you could expand on some of your motivations. Yeah, sure. Um, I have always loved eggs. It was They were the vehicle for my bonding with my father. Um, cooking is something I've always done with my dad. And while we've done a lot of different experiments, um, some of the most memorable ones um, are the ones that we've done with eggs because you can do rapid prototyping with eggs. They're relatively cheap. I mean, even now. Even now. (laughs) Not as cheap as they used to be. If you compare them to the cost of other kinds of protein, they're still pretty cheap. And they cook so fast. And because they cook so fast, there's a lot of artistry in how you can cook them. Um, and uh, it was a way of my dad teaching me when I was a little girl um, that I had influence over things, that the decisions I made mattered. Um, and it was also a way of teaching me that persistence matters. You know, if you make one omelet and screw it up, you can just eat it and it will still probably taste pretty good. But if you make eight omelets in a row, you'll, you'll improve quite a lot from your first to your eighth omelet. Um, did, you still reach your goal? did you yet reach your goal of the perfect French omelet? <laughs> <laughs> the goal is it's attained like um, periodically and somewhat unpredictably, but now that I have switched to a nonstick pan, it's, it's, it's painstakingly yeah. easy after all my years. Uh, working with a, a blue steel pan. <laughs> yeah, see, I mean, actually, I, I thought that was kind of interesting because, I mean, I hate uh, nonstick pans, um, but I found that um, a, a seasoned cast iron skill works just as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think you need more, like, knowledge of your stove if you're working with something like that because the... Um, the pan has to be hot enough that the egg will release freely, but not so hot that you, like, brown your egg immediately uh-huh. when you put it 
in the pan. Um, yeah, so that was one of the reasons I, um, I started looking into eggs. Um, another was that I had my ovaries removed during this egg writing process um, or <laughs> during the book writing process. I come from a cancer family, um, so uh, I have a BRCA1 mutation, and that gives me a much higher risk right. of breast and ovarian cancer than the ordinary person. Um, and so it didn't hit me until I was maybe two-thirds of the way through the writing process, like, hey, I'm writing a book on eggs, and I'm also <laughs> removing my eggs. Maybe this is part of my interest. Um, I think it's a direct connection. I mean, I would think, why, why not? Yeah. I, I mean, mean it had to be at the top of your head. <laughs> I mean, a fear of, of when you have that genetic abnormality or whatever we call it, um, yeah. it, it certainly, you know, cause my mother um, had breast cancer, and I've been yeah. tested since I was 20 years old. So yeah. but I, don't have, I don't have the genetic marker. So Yeah. But, um, well, okay, so those are important motivations. Um, how did you decide to organize the book? The, the, the well, chapter, the first chapter is the one I knew the very least about, which is the cosmic egg. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, it was um, a pretty hard book to write, or my process was challenging, not just because of the pandemic or because I had concussions at the beginning of the process, um, oh, no. but simply because there's so much information about eggs. Like, uh -huh. I could have written a book that was just one weird egg anecdote after the other. Yeah, so, there are but, weird ones. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I mean, yeah, the egg trivia that is like in my hind brain now is truly um, <laughs> uh, confusing to me. <laughs> but um, so I had to sit down and figure out what stories were the most compelling stories to me and why. Um, and that is part of why I uh, chose to organize it the way I did. All of the chapter titles have egg in them. So there's, you know, egg rush, egg hunt. Um, tossed eggs, or egg toss, and so on. And um, once I decided that I was going to focus on 12 particular kinds of eggs, the structure of the book really came together quickly. Um, although there was a lot of uh, kind of, there were a lot of wonderful things I had to um, leave on the cutting room floor. Oh, I know. Every writer says that, by the way, I mean, of every single book. It's, uh, but it's always motivation to, to move on to another book. So, Yes, uh, yes. Tell, tell our listeners about a cosmic egg. Now, these were stories I thought I knew a lot about because, I mean, my present work was all in art history. We had... Um, you know, so many uh, iconography issues and stuff like that. I thought I knew about this, but a lot of this I didn't know. Uh, it's, it's really ancient and primal, isn't it? It sure is. This was one of the things that shocked me. Um, I was looking into egg mythology because I just love mythology. I love stories. It's what I came me up too. on. And I couldn't remember any egg myths, like, off the top of my head. But when I started looking into it, what I found is that eggs are present in a huge number of creation myths around the world. Um, yeah. And they are what happens before anything else happens. 
Um, uh, but they're, and so they're often left out, I think, of um, a lot of creation stories. So, yeah, see, I, I did all this history and all this uh, iconography study, and I knew nothing about this, uh, th- these cosmic egg stories you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't either. And, uh, you know, my friend circle is full of people who love stories, and so I was testing the waters like anybody know about cosmic eggs. Um, <laughs> and the only person who did is the person who did, like, a master's in um, mythology studies. Uh-huh. Um, but the cosmic egg is um, is that uh, it's the place that the universe comes from. In Finnish myth, there are um, eggs that are laid by the uh, teal flying over the mother of waters. The mother of waters lifts her knee up, and the teal lay, builds a nest on it and lays, I think it's like six eggs of gold and a seventh of iron or something like that, seven eggs. Anyway, as the eggs are incubating, they get hot and they start to burn the mother of the waters. And so she jostles her leg and the eggs <laughs> roll down it and break. And then out of them springs the world. Amazing. Um, so that's one of the common, uh, common types of egg myths. Uh, in other egg myths, you know, it's like the creator of the world starts out inside an eggshell that's revolving in space or floating on water or something like that. And then they burst out and create the world. Now, um, something I also did not know about was um, the, the it, chapter two, your egg hunt. I had no idea there was like a gold rush on eggs. Yes. Yes. And this, um, happened during the kind of the Victorian era, and there were a couple different types of rushes. So um, I think the one you might be thinking of is the, are you thinking of San Francisco in the gold rush era? No, I'm thinking of the one where people started collecting these eggs. Yeah, uh, for, yes. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and risking their lives and stuff too. Yeah, yeah. So there was this move in the 1800s yes, and that's before, it. but it concentrated in the 1800s where people were trying to classify the natural world. Um, and this was part of, okay. you know, oh, okay. colonialist impulse, colonialist impulses and all of that. So people would go out and they would collect bird eggs and bird skins to try to figure out how all of the species were related to each other. Um, and in the case of bird eggs, this also became a schoolboy pastime. It was like the gateway drug, the harder types of ornithology. Um, you know, it was better than having your young, your young boys smoking cigarettes on the corner or collecting bottle caps or something. They could go out and be in nature and bring back eggshells that they would blow out and um, keep in a nice collection. And to top it off, you know, the eggshells are kind of pretty. Um, But but to get to an eggshell, you have to know a ton about the species that that you're hunting. You've got to know where they're nesting. You've got to know exactly when they nest. Because if you don't get the egg when it's freshly laid, then there's a developed embryo inside, and it's harder to um, keep just the eggshell. Uh, and so some men be- absolutely became obsessed 
Um, nobody I talked to had ever heard of a female egg collector. It's all men. And apparently um, now most of the collectors are British men. Well, um, this I can see, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. You, you know, Peter's British. <laughs> you know that. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there are some amazing British egg traditions, and there are, like, lots of them. Um, I could have written, like, a whole book just on the British egg traditions, almost, it felt like. Um, but so after collecting wild bird eggs became illegal um, because it interferes with species conservation, you know, you don't want to be taking eggs from an endangered eagle's nest. Um, there were still some men who just couldn't stop themselves from doing it. And I think we're kind of in the last gasp of that um, in the British countryside because new generations now have come up um, I guess eggs, egg, egging was made illegal in like the 50s in Great Britain, and so um, a lot of the younger... I, did, I didn't know that. Up. I didn't know that yeah. either. It's, it's yeah. funny, I was, yeah. reflecting, I was reflecting on, on eggs, eggs we have eaten over the years, and there was a, there was a particular place we had lunch the last, last time we were in, in London doing preparation and interviews with various people and we had seagull eggs were on the menu and we had some oh wow how were they they were, they were actually very good of course yeah. i don't like seagulls they really take they steal your food on the yeah, beach and, and and was perfectly happy to consume them i just i, <laughs> I just yeah. i just thought that i just thought they tasted rather good very, yeah. very fishy very fishy not surprisingly <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, um, now, um, the, the, then you move into the next chapter with where uh, egg rush, which I, I kind of have that sort of also tied in with your um, your um, chapter on eggs for money. Yes. Tell, tell yeah. our listeners about that. The egg mm-hmm. rush was a real deal. I, I mean, I didn't even know where this place was. <laughs> where, where yeah. Eggs. Yeah, okay, so picture um, Gold Rush era San Francisco. Um, Before the Gold Rush, it's got like 6,000 people in it. Within a couple years, gold, uh, after gold is discovered, within a couple years, tens of thousands of people move to this city. And the city infrastructure just cannot keep up. And so there's a food shortage. And this makes the price of eggs very expensive, both because like the agricultural business hasn't caught up, and also because um, big flocks of chickens just wouldn't grow in the area very well at the time. And so uh, the price, there were eggs shipped to San Francisco from Boston, <laughs> like around South America, and these eggs were um, old. They'd arrive and they'd be like three, a Boston egg would be like three months old. So the price of eggs had skyrocketed. <laughs> the price of fresh local eggs was like I a couldn't believe the price that you're talking about. I mean, it was sort it's of like four hundred and twenty-seven dollars. Yeah, two of over a thousand dollars per For dozen. A dozen. Um, and we think and, seven bucks is expensive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
so and, uh, and your origin about you, you weave in all these things we all would like to know but don't until you tell us like you the origin of the hangtown fry oh yeah yeah that was um some guy walked into hangtown who had just struck it rich the legend says and he threw a bag of gold on the table and he said make me the most expensive dish on the menu and so that was oysters and eggs because eggs were so pricey. But yeah, so some enterprising uh, brothers figured out that there were huge flocks of seagulls on these really inhospitable rocky islands, um, just a little ways off the coast of San Francisco. And uh, they went out there and filled their boat full of so many eggs that even though they lost like half of them on the way back to town, they were able mm-hmm. to sell their boatload for about $100,000 in today's money. Incredible. Um, but the journey was so awful that they vowed never to go back. However, word spread quickly, and some enterprising businessmen were out there very soon after um, setting up an official uh, gig, um, collecting the eggs of seabirds on the Farallon Islands, primarily the common muir. Um, and that, <laughs> it was such a profitable business that um, rival gangs were fighting each other for control of this island that's maybe, you know, half a mile square. Um, it, also, it also decimated birds, the bird species there. Um, I think, uh, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of seabirds at the beginning of the egg rush hundreds of thousands of um, the common muir at the beginning of the, the big egg rush. And by the end of the egg rush, the population had dropped to like 6,000 birds. So it really did take a toll. Um, but thankfully, the Farallon Islands has since become a protected um, nature preserve and uh, bird populations are beginning to recover there. <coughs> you were <are> moving <coughs> in the opposite direction, <coughs> excuse me, direction on egg money. I mean, it's, uh, that was a way of, of augmenting what little money you had, right? That's right, yeah. This was something where, you know, chickens stick close to the house, and so women and children would often raise them, and this would provide them, this would provide usually her with egg money, in some places, women bartered eggs for other goods and services, but um, they could also save the money and use it. It was often used for, like, a Christmas present for a child or maybe for education for a child. And in the same way, in the, um, in the antebellum South, uh, chick, uh, uh, people who were enslaved were not allowed to own livestock. However, um, the slaveholders really liked eating chicken, and so, which was very labor-intensive to produce. And so they, let, um, uh, so they let people who were enslaved own chickens. Um, and in the little time those people had to call their own, they, ra- they would raise the chickens, and they were able to sell meat and eggs for a profit um, to buy whatever they wanted, um, including, in some cases, saving up for their, to buy their own freedom. And so and I thought that was pretty amazing. This, yeah. The, um, of course, I'm special interested in your fifth chapter with your egg gurus because they're, they're some of my favorite people. 
Um, you have Harold McGee. Uh, you, you have Kenzie Lopez. Also, I adore him. As I told you, he's the one who 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 actually settled our our questions about boiling soft boiling eggs, and then of course Jacques Fontaine, who, by the way, is not only a guru of cooking the eggs, but his his drawings of chickens are the most fabulous drawings. I love them, and he's a charmer, isn't he? Oh, my gosh. I mean, he is my TV dad, you know. (laughs) I got to talk to my TV dad for this book. And I got to talk to Kenji, who I quote um, constantly, basically. You know, how should we do the eggs today, my dad says. (laughs) Well, Kenji says, dad. (laughs) Uh, Kenji did the science. And now we know steaming eggs for 11 minutes over an inch of water uh, it's the perfect way to hard-boil them. <laughs> He's amazing, isn't he? I mean, just amazing. Yeah. So, um, yeah. well, I mean, you you cover so many different things in, in your book. Um, I mean, I, I had, it was your Pazanki chapter yeah. uh, reminded me of, um, I had a, a, a friend who who was actually married to a symphony conductor, and she used to do. She was from Texas. She did everything in a big way, and she used to have an Easter egg painting party every year. And she would invite all the artists in town to come and do these eggs. And oh, um, cool. she had this incredible collection. I got a uh, an emu egg. And was it an emu? No, it was a different. What well, was that? What that kind of egg? And um, I, I had a uh, magic marker, and so I decorated this egg, um, not realizing that she hadn't blown the contents of the oh, egg. Oh no! Oh yes, and and then after it was done, of course, because it was a, a this uh, felted pen thing, uh, we then put a shellac over it. In effect, making a bomb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so she had the local TV station come to film her collection just about the time when the egg blew up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it exploded with the worst odor you could ever imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely experienced that. <laughs> so that was funny. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't yeah. thought about that in a long time, but now when I read your Pizanki thing, I thought that's funny. So, but, which leads us in our next that. chapter with the clown eggs. Now, what was this? Yeah, um, this was one of the more fun uh, facts I learned during the writing process, and that is that um, so clowns have an unofficial rule that says that you cannot copy another clown's makeup or costuming. I didn't and know that either. To preserve this order, what they do is they uh, paint the makeup and costume, and well, they paint the makeup and they do a little bit of costuming on an eggshell um, to record the clown's art for posterity. And they used to use true eggshells, but um, too much of the collection got smashed over the years. Yeah. So now they use ceramic ones. Um, And I believe there are several collections in the U.S., um, but 
I, the original collection is in the UK through the group Clowns International. And um, I had hoped to actually go to London and like meet um, Maddie Faint, Maddie the Clown, who's the um, archivist of, for the association. But of course, COVID happened and there was no oh, travel yeah. happening. So I did the next best thing, which was um, Skype into his basement where the, uh, where the collection is currently housed. And it, there were many other interesting clown items there, and I spent a lovely few hours having him like show me different parts of the collection and tell me about them and learning a little bit about his story. Um, and I got to talk to the official clown egg artist, too, uh, she is a lovely, lovely, lovely woman. And, um, yeah, and I got to learn a little bit about her actual process. Uh, drawing on an egg is not as, as simple as it seems, as I guess I yeah. learned firsthand trying to make <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah. But the shape really is a, um, an egg shape really is the shape of a head. So there's a lot you can do in the medium for sure. Well, of course, you also venture into um, egg tosses, uh, eggs in performance art, which you seem to have an affinity for, and you, you kind of conclude that um, that that you're going to be able to venture into doing um, that kind of art, right? Performance art with eggs. Oh yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but have, not not before you you took us into space, which is a really yeah. funny idea. I mean, I never thought of it quite this way before. That what a funny thing it was taking eggs into space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Uh, there are so many foods that involve egg. Like Jacques Pepin told me, the egg is to cuisine what the article is to speech. You know, you can't do a thing in the kitchen without one. And uh -huh. any kind of space colony is going to need a food source and a protein source. And I think the Soviets figured out that Japanese quail eggs provide like the most protein per gram of weight or something like that. Um, yeah. But of course, we sent chicken eggs up into space as well, often as stand-ins for the human body to figure out what, what might happen to the human body um, in space. So they were a part of like very early high altitude balloon experiments. But then I cover at length in the book um, the case of uh, John Vellinger, a, uh, who when he was a young man got interested in the backyard chickens that his parents were raising because they rotate their eggs um, a couple times a day to prevent gravity from pulling the yolk downward, um, which yeah. can interfere with the development of the chicken. And so he, over many years of prototyping and um, trying to win this NASA science experiment, science competition, and finally winning it, created an experiment to send an egg incubator up into space. Um, and he sent uh, two-day-old egg embryos and nine-day-old egg embryos. I should add that as part of winning the contest, they partnered him with a corporate sponsor, which was Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, funny. Yeah, so he worked with this um, with the R and D lab at Kentucky Fried Chicken with a guy named Mark Deucer, 
And um, the two of them concocted with, I assume with a, a bigger team as well, concocted um, this egg incubator um, to test what happened to eggs in a zero-gravity environment. Mm -hmm. And um, many of the eggs died, the young embryos died, but the nine-day-old embryos that were sent into space, they were able to successfully hatch many of them. And that is how we get, got Kentucky the space chicken um, that lived out its life in the Louisville Zoo. And John yeah. Vellinger and Mark Deucer went on to form a company called TechShot um, that builds scientific gear um, for use in space. Um, so it's just really fascinating to talk to people who are so close to like, the space exploration project, um, which is not something I think a lot about in my ordinary life. Um, it felt very um, mystical and cool um, to talk to people who knew what, what, you know, what really is going to be possible in space. When I talked oh, yeah. to them, they had, they had developed a 3D printing machine that, had, um, that was bioprinting human organs in space. I think they'd done human knee meniscus, and they were also futzing around with something that was going to be able to create like a cloned steak in space, I think. Oh, wow. Or maybe they were just joking about it. I don't remember. I don't know. <laughs> um, exactly, it but. seems a bit strange. I know it's so far ahead. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, of course, the new, you end with the egg cures, and this, again, I mean, when – you know, the polio vaccine was um, created in Pittsburgh. And, and um, everybody was supposed to be getting this vaccine. And um, they wouldn't give it to anybody um, who had had at any point an egg um, allergy. Yeah. So I guess there's an egg involved in that somewhere too. So I didn't get the um, vaccination for a long time because I had an early egg allergy. But apparently you're very optimistic about uh, the, the role of eggs in cures. Yes. Yeah, in addition to its involvement in tr uh, many traditional vaccine development processes, not all of them, but many of them, um, there's a new wave of egg science happening um, using... Uh, using gene editing technology. So the way vaccines work right now, like the flu vaccine, most of the world's flu vaccines are grown in eggs. If you stick a needle into the developing embryo of the chicken and you infect it with the flu, and then it multiplies the flu viruses because viruses need live tissue to stay alive. And then... Um, the virus is purified and denatured and put into the vaccines that ultimately go into our arms. And so scientists thought, what if we could, eggs have this incredible ability to incubate life. What if we produced chickens that just laid eggs full of pharmaceutically useful protein? So they've now done some gene editing of chickens to create eggs full of drugs with clinical applications. And there already is one on the market um, for kind of a rare inherited disorder. Um, and that was approved, I think, back in maybe 2015. Um, and there are scientists working on using eggs to produce 
proteins involved in like cancer treatment management. Um, so it's a brave new field, and um, the media has dubbed it the field of, with an F now, pharmaceuticals. Um, so bioengineering animals to produce proteins that are helpful in medicine. And that kind of blew my, blew my mind, <laughs> for sure. That must have been a chapter in its own. Yeah, well, yeah. listeners, uh, as I indicated to start with, you're going to want to get a hold of this book. And um, it, it touches on just about every field of, of study, um, human importance, significance, um, and it's just called EGG, big E-G-G. And, and the author who we've been talking to is Lizzie Stark. And, I mean, you'll know so much more about it all kinds of things, history, philosophy, um, biology, uh, nutrition, whatever, when you finish reading this book. Highly recommend it. And uh, Lizzie, uh, it was a delight talking to you. Oh, delight talking with you too. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. Bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. As I told you a few seconds ago, Heather Mubarak, I think you're extremely dangerous, <laughs> primarily because this book, first of all, your book is uh, called The Sandwich Cookie Book, Stuffed is the title, Stuffed. And um, I, I didn't expect to have a book about cookies be this thick. I mean, I didn't really understand how you could. Do you have an idea of the number of recipes you have? But of course, there are the variations on the yes, stuffings and so on. But I mean, roughly how many cookie recipes you're talking about? Sure, there's uh, 65 uh, sandwich cookie recipes in the book, and like you said, there are endless possibilities for mixing and matching your cookie with your filling. So there are 65 actual recipes um, spelled out for you, and then at the end of the book, there's an entire chapter devoted to frosting, filling, homemade jams, curds, slow churn, ice cream. So you can use that chapter um, to kind of mix and match to suit your, suit your own sweet tooth. But you know what, what I said to um, Heather before we came on board listeners is she's really dangerous. Now, I'm, everybody who listens to me regularly knows I do not have a sweet tooth. But her photographs, because she did the photography, Heather Mubarak did the photography as well, are so enticing that, I mean, I, I, I was going to jump onto that other team, the sweet team. They were just absolutely oh, gorgeous. Uh-huh. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I really appreciate that. It was really fun um, photographing the book, actually, because, well, it was fun photographing the cookies, and then I got to eat them after. So <laughs> there was a reward. There was a reward at the end. You know, your lucky daughters, you have three daughters, and they they help you, but they're, they're your principal taste testers, you said. Yes, they are. They, everything goes by them first. So um, they're pretty picky, so, um, which is a good thing, I think. Um, they have very discerning well, sure. palates. So if, 
if a cookie wasn't up to snuff, they would definitely let me know. Well, now you you are in California, and we were talking about the dreadful weather you've been having out there. Um, but but you've been you you emphasize that you are a self-taught baker. Um, but you're also a recipe developer, a photographer, wonderful photographs, um, and the creator of a blog called Brown Butter Blondie, um, yep. which has been going for a while. And now this book. This is your first book? It is my first book, yes. But you've written for all kinds of important publications I was reading. I've, I've done some writing, yes, uh, mostly for my own blog. But, yeah, you'll see my name here and there on some other publications. But, um, but yeah, I, I have done the – I started the blog in 2018, um, kind of always thinking in the back of my head that maybe one day I'd want to write a book. And then I think during the pandemic I kind of had this, you know, like everyone else, this epiphany that, oh, hey, you know, I'm spending a lot of time at home. I can do more. <laughs> so I – decided to, you know, find an agent and, and write a proposal, and that's when the book all got started. So, um, you know, well, you, here we are, of course, two years later when it's coming out. I, I realized, you know, that, I mean, I, I didn't – stuffed cookies um, are sort of a category onto its own as opposed to the single cookies. Uh, I mean, I encountered that from the ice cream size things where they have the uh, – the ice cream cookies. Uh, with right, the, ice cream sandwiches. Yeah, right. Right. But um, you put it in a whole different perspective here. It, double the cookie, double the fun kind of thing. <laughs> Tell us about yes, your yes. divisions, your your chapters here. Oh, how, well, how we you... have something for everyone in this book. Um, it's basically divided uh, by flavor type, I would say. So, Sort of. I mean, in the beginning, you start off kind of with your classics. It's called oldies but goodies. So it's kind of like um, a throwback to some childhood favorites. We have things like homemade Oreos and homemade Milanos, um, Nutter Butters. Yeah, I didn't know the Milanos was a category, actually. I I only know the Pepperidge Farm Milanos. <laughs> yes, like well, crazy. that was my favorite, favorite cookie growing up, as far as a store-bought cookie went. My mom made a lot of cookies when I was growing up, but if there was a store-bought cookie to be had, I would choose a milk chocolate Milano, interestingly enough. Now I definitely prefer a dark chocolate Milano as I've gotten older. Um, uh-huh. But when I set out to write the book, I was like, you know, I want to, you know, of course, it's just kind of fun to kind of put some of those nostalgic cookies into your book in a homemade fashion. And I was like, I've got to do a Milano because that was my favorite. And uh, I was really happy with how they turned out. It's a nice, flaky, buttery, um, crispy cookie, of course. And then we put like a homemade chocolate ganache in the center. So they're really good. And dark chocolate. There is an option to do a milk chocolate if that's more your listeners, style. you understand. Um, you get in the picture here. This woman is dangerous. <laughs> she really is. <laughs> yeah, and then but, we go on to um, to other chapters like uh, for the love of chocolate, which obviously is all about chocolate. There's a spicy chapter for cookies with a kick, um, a little spice in them. We have a fruity chapter, and that has you know cookies that are filled with things like um, strawberry jam and homemade lemon curd. And then there's even a savory chapter, which is um, I think there's seven cookies, cookies in that chapter, and that is for anyone that you know is looking for maybe more of like an appetizer style um, cookie sandwich that has you know that savory flavor going on and can pair nicely with a glass of wine. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> like now, you you have 
obviously some, um, well, of course you have skills, but you also have kind of an artistic flair. Because uh, I kept looking at these photographs thinking, no cookie I ever baked would come out looking like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am a bit of a perfectionist um, when it comes to that sort of thing. But I think with all of the recipe testing that you do, and after many years of baking for the blog, you really figure out how to, you know, how to make a cookie come out perfectly with all the practice that I've had. So, um, yeah, I, I do um, lean towards the side of the type A personality, so I did want every photo to really reflect a beautiful <laughs> cookie that would be, you know, a drool-worthy thing that people would just want to run and make the recipe after seeing the photo. Well, this is it. This is it. I mean, you're talking to somebody who doesn't even bake. I don't have an idea, but um, it, it kind of would put you in the mood for that. Oh, so, for sure. And 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 you leave room for all the uh, you, you leave room for all the creativity by this mix and max mix and match stuff, right? Yeah, so, so like I said, every recipe sort of comes with an already decided upon filling, and that's what you'll see in the photograph. And then throughout the book, you'll see a little call-out, um, kind of like a little box on the recipe page that says mix and match, and it will give you other options. But really, I mean, anything goes. Um, if you like to put lemon with chocolate, go for it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you really can do whatever you like um, with the book, which is, which is kind of fun. And the other thing is, too, you know, some people might not want to all the time, you know, create an entire cookie sandwich because it might just be a little too much going on or they just want to have a regular cookie. Or um, So that's another option too, of course, is just to make the cookies themselves, which are, again, alone, absolutely delicious. So there's a lot of possibilities, and you can also use all of the fillings and frostings and all that good stuff in the back of the book to put on your favorite cupcakes or cake or whatnot. So... There's a lot well, you of know, recipes in the, the book that I think everyone will love. The, the uh, baker who wants to go over the top has a, a bunch of opportunities here, too. Like, I'm looking at your peanut yeah. butter pretzel cookies with chocolate ice cream. <laughs> yep, yep. Those are some loaded <laughs> cookies. There's a lot, of, yeah. a lot going on in that cookie. Yeah, and, and the other one that caught my eye was brown butter macadamia nut blondies with coconut ice cream <laughs> Oh, that you know, wild them at the actually, cookie swap. Yes, yes. Sarah's are actually so much easier to make than really any of the cookies in the book because it's, it's basically a – it's really not a cookie. I did put it in the book. There's also another brownie ice cream sandwich that's technically not a cookie, but you can still make them into sandwiches when you cut them into squares. So I um, you know, I found a spot for them, and I, I couldn't not include those brown butter macadamia and that blondie because they are out of this world. Um, but you yes. basically make them in one pan, and then you'll cut them into squares so it kind of actually saves time because you're not making batch after batch of cookies, you know, on a cookie sheet. So, oh, they're delicious. They're so good. There's just so many levels of flavor going on in those blondies. Really? Yeah, um, I mean, I could tell from yeah. the title. Yeah, that's why I said you're dangerous. Uh, this, <laughs> one, there were, <laughs> the, the, you have here um, a, a sugar cookie confetti ice cream sandwich, which looks absolutely enticing. But the one that I, I really... I think you, Peter, you said over the top of the banana split ice cream sandwiches with the cherry on top. <laughs> the cherry on top. It says in the head note, I think, don't forget the cherry on top. 
<laughs> yeah, that's another. I mean, I think people don't necessarily think to put bananas in a cookie, but gosh, those are good. They're really good. I could eat them for breakfast. They're just like a. They're just you know you get a little bit of that sweetness from the banana and just a hint of banana flavor and um, those are really good cookies. Yeah. Oh, and the texture that they give you, I mean, yeah, I think it's a great idea. So um, so you you start talking a little bit about, oh, I have to mention this one, because you're well known for your toffee. Um, Here's, listeners, just get get this one. Brown butter toffee walnut cookies with bourbon ice cream. (laughs) Yes, that is an adult cookie. (laughs) (laughs) That's not one that you're going to take to the park with the kids. Um, no, you're not going to. Yeah, this is not, yeah, not the cookie exchange. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, yeah, that's another great you, cookie that's got a lot going on, and the toffee in there is just like, oh, so delicious. What about root beer popcorn cookie ice cream sandwiches? <laughs> another one that seems very over the top, but it's so much easier to make than you would think, and, and that root beer popcorn, I mean, if you can get the root beer popcorn and actually make it into the cookies, then you're, you've won. Because that root, when I was making that stuff, I just kept eating it. <laughs> and I was like, wait, I need to save it to make the cookies. <laughs> but that, yeah, it's a very snackable, snackable treat. Now, on, on, on the average day, how many cookies do you eat and how many cookies do you expect your real enthusiastic readers of the book will make? Oh, gosh. Well, I hope they'll bake their way through the whole book because there are so many delicious recipes in there to try. Um, I actually subscribe to the cookie-a-day philosophy. Um, I grew up with a mom who made chocolate chip cookies all the time, and they still to this day are my favorite dessert. Um, so I, I think, I mean, probably five days out of seven, I have a chocolate chip cookie every day after dinner. That's my thing. I love really? That. So, yeah, really, absolutely. I love them so much. And so I, I was um, telling someone else, they were like, well, do you make cookies every day then just so you could have that chocolate chip cookie? And I don't. I mean, I do make cookies quite a bit, um, especially when I was writing the book, obviously. But um, I, I use the freezer staff. So I'll bake a batch of cookies and scoop them out, right. freeze them flat on a cookie sheet for about an hour, and then transfer them to a, a freezer bag. And then I've got a freezer staff so I can just bake one or two off when I feel like it. Oh, now, have, 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 have you ever have you ever met Mr. Walker of Walker's Shortbread? I have not. I'm a big fan of Walker's Shortbread. <laughs> we met him. We met him at a food show once. Interesting. Yeah, they still have their original oh, right. building, yeah. don't they? They, they? they built another. They just built another building. Basically, Walker's Shortbread is the is the is the employer in town. Yeah, oh yes, I'm sure. In a small, yes. in, in a small, yes. in, in a small town, in the northwest of Scotland, and he told yes. us that he, he he just they just built an, a new uh, plant so they could produce even more shortbread cookies. Even more. Oh wow. I I, I do yeah, like shortbread a, a lot. I love it too. When I was a kid, I um, my dad was a scientist who spent a lot of time in Cambridge, England. Um, three summers, in fact, oh. that I remember when I was a teenager. And uh, I became a fast fan of Walker Shortbread while we were there, for sure. Yeah. Now, what, what, what was he doing? My, my dad is a geophysicist. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so he was, he was doing some work at Cambridge University, and so we brought the whole family, grandparents and everything, for three months every summer, I think, yeah. for, I think, three years in a row. 
It was fabulous. It was a great way to, to spend that's summer. Peter's, I think I, that's Peter's alma mater, Cambridge. Yeah, you, oh, is it? Oh, I love you, Cambridge. Did, we went back about ever, a year ago and took our kids. Did you ever have afternoon tea at the Copper Kettle? No, I don't know the Copper Kettle. <laughs> it's right, right, on Trumping, right on Trumpington Street. Oh, no. Next so, time I go, I'll have to remember that. The Copper <laughs> Kettle. There you go. The Copper Kettle. I'll remember that. You know, that must be the only kid in the world that didn't grow up with snickerdoodles. What are snickerdoodles? <laughs> snickerdoodles. Oh, gosh, there's a great recipe in the book, too, for a brown butter. I'm looking at brown butter are you looking snickerdoodles at with chives, spice, buttercream. Yes. Oh, this is so good. I think I developed that recipe in the epitome of fall weather. I think it was October. And it was feeling very fallish. The leaves were turning, which they kind of barely do here in California. But it was definitely um, a very fall-inspired recipe, and I do love that one. Um, a snickerdoodle is basically, I mean, for lack of a better explanation, it's kind of just like a, sh- a very plain sugar cookie, really. Um, but it's rolled in cinnamon sugar, and it also has um, a cream of tartar in it, generally. Uh, most recipes do, and that helps give it sort of this little crackled top. Um, they're a really great cookie, and they're a very mild flavor, generally speaking. So I think that a lot of people like them because they're, you know, it's kind of like a cookie for everyone. Yeah, everybody seems to have been raised on them. I never had one, but um, it, the, you do cutouts, too. Now, aren't cutout cookies finicky? Well, um I think if you have the right recipe, they're really easy. I make my cutout cookies very easy to make. Um, and I do a little trick where I don't even know where I got this idea, but I probably was somewhere online at some point. So whoever needs the credit, I give you the credit. But I roll the cookies <laughs> out between between two layers of uh, parchment paper. Um, and I'll put that parchment paper on top of like a silicone baking mat or something so it doesn't slide on the countertop. And then, I'll, like I said, I'll put the dough down on a piece of parchment paper and then put a large piece of parchment paper on top and then roll with the rolling pin. It's a lot less messy. And then you just slide that little rolled-out dough that you've made onto a cookie sheet and put it in the fridge to chill. And then an hour or two later, it's ready to cut. So it's pretty easy. Um, I don't like. I don't have a lot of patience when it comes to baking. I'm a pretty, you know, impatient person in general. So I definitely didn't make any of my recipes too difficult. Well, that's good. I mean, we had um, a, a local TV chef, and we decided on um, the Sicilian Christmas cookie that we were going to do. He's a TV show. And um, we started researching, and first of all, nobody had the same recipe. All the recipes were different because they were, you know, old school, old country style with not exact yes. measurements, number one. And number two, uh, the way you had to—it took two days to make them. <laughs> you have to make one oh, thing and put it in the refrigerator and, and, and do something. Else. Well, um, yeah. here's yeah. here's one. I could, in the book. Oh, yeah. Now I was going to tell you one cookie that I would not even attempt to make is the ginger doodle Neapolitan cookie with cinnamon buttercream. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, because that's basically three cookies in one. You're getting three uh-huh. different cookies. And so you do, that one is a little, I will say, you're right, a little more labor intensive. However, <laughs> they do come together pretty quickly. You do essentially have to make two doughs, and then you split one dough and make a third dough out of that. 
and then they all roll together. They're really fun to make. I think kids really like to do them. Um, I got my, I got my girls in the kitchen with me that day, and they helped me roll the little balls. Um, it, they're really fun, and they, I, a Neapolitan cookie is just it, they're just so fun because they're a little bit more unusual, right? So you'll see the picture in the book, obviously, that you're looking at right now has the three different tones and the three different flavors. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's another great one um, for fall, too. So now you, your section on cocktail cookies, um, I mean, I think that I could really fall for some of these, like rosemary pine nut sable with whipped goat's cheese. Now, that's, that's mm-hmm. perfect for a cocktail party. Oh, they're yeah. great. And you can make them into sandwiches if you want to, or you could just put the filling on the side into a bowl and then leave the, you know, the crackers slash cookies uh, on a platter and let people assemble themselves. Or, you know, you can kind of deconstruct them, basically, is what I'm saying, if you don't want to make an actual sandwich out of them. But those are good. Yeah, I love, I'm a big goat cheese fan. Are you? I love goat cheese. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and you yeah, have a, so everything bagel crackers with chive cream cheese that look pretty good. Uh, and yes. they don't but too difficult to make. And um, no, Parmesan Talenta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. these yeah, I mean, are really a whole new flavor. world putting these out. Uh, blue cheese and walnut slice and bakes with fig preserves. Now that's calling my name. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, if you're a blue cheese fan, you'll love those. They're really good. And I, I mean, I never say no to fig preserves. So also in a great, a great flavor, especially paired with blue cheese. Um, yeah, so those cocktail cookies are great. They're perfect for, you know, a picnic or a happy hour with friends or hors d'oeuvres at a dinner party. Yeah, and you, you threw out, I should, throughout the book, um, I should mention, you, you have tips, which I think um, are very, very important. Um, how to do certain things and how to, um, going the extra mild to explain how how everything's supposed to come out what is the biggest mistake that the cookie bakers make oh gosh well several <laughs> i talk to a lot of people and help them troubleshoot when they're not able to have their cookies turn out right um, i think the probably the, for starters the temperature of their butter um, yeah that's everybody butter. says that and I don't know why. That's one, I'm not even a baker, and that's one of the first things I learned was you have to soften the butter. Right, right. And if, if you you're making the butter if, too much, no. If you're making pie crust, you got you don't get the flake if you have it uh, too softened. Right, right. So the temperature of butter is is important. Um, it's general rule for for a lot of the cookies in the book. 67 degrees is about right. You know, you want to be able to like make an indentation in the in the pat of butter without you know, your fingers sinking into it. If it's in any way melted, you're, it's too warm. Yeah, too um, And then I think the second thing is probably um, over-measuring flour. I think that's the biggest yeah. culprit for how the reason cookies well, don't turn out. A lot of people you're, are You're insistent about, yeah, about the, uh, having the scale, which any scale, serious yes. baker points out that the, the scale is absolutely essential. Yes. Well, it really just makes the whole process easier, too. At first, it might be intimidating, you know, for some that have never used a scale and they just prefer to use their measuring cups. But um, a scale really does take all the guesswork out of it, and they're really easy to use, and they're really inexpensive. You can, you know, pick one up online for almost nothing. So, um, and then your cookies will turn out well every time. So, yeah, so scale, I think, is important. Um, 
checking your oven temperature. A lot of people's oven runs too hot or too cold. Well, that's so really rough having... because there's, that's all over the board. I mean, um, have you ever yes. attempted making a pavlova <laughs> if you don't have your oven <laughs> at the right temperature? <laughs> Calibrated, right, right. Well, I think an oven thermometer, again, is a really inexpensive item to pick up that will really help you know your oven best because no two ovens are the same, that's for sure. Huh. Well, um, I've, I've, do you bake other things besides cookies? Or, of course, you've probably been. I do. Really... I do. Yes, there's many, many other recipes on the blog that don't involve cookies. I love to bake. Um, I'm a, I really like simple cakes. I don't do a lot of layer cakes. Um, I like them, but again, I think we <laughs> we talked about how I'm not the most patient baker. So waiting for all those layers to bake and cool, and then you have to do the crumb layer and all that business is. I'm too impatient for it. So I do love a bunt cake or a single-layer sheet cake or a snack cake. Uh, those are my favorite, I think. I do a lot of muffins. and um, Yeah, lots of – I bake all things. Uh, I just got a little bit partial to cookies, obviously, for my first book. Well, I, I really was spoiled because my mother was a baker, and she, and she especially pies. She made the best pies. Oh, and, uh, nice. And yes. they're they're hard. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. I yeah. And you got to get that crust I mean, just right. It takes yes, a long time exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. it My gets tough to if you ever work it. Yeah, and yeah. And then yeah. The, the getting it on the 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 pan without tearing the the dough and yes, <laughs> yes. Peter oh, will remember there, my one there. attempt. Peter will remember my one attempt, and we were living in Australia, and I was going to make a strawberry pie. Uh, and, I, I mean, I'm not really that – but my mother used to use a combination of fresh strawberries and frozen strawberries for the juicy right. part, you know. And yep. they, don't, they didn't have any frozen strawberry product like that in Australia. Uh, and then the okay. crust – the crust, you know, uh, the, what wasn't they used lard for the crust rabbit? Yes. Yeah, and uh, and I had no yeah. idea how to how, and and then I remembered my mother pricking the you know she put the the bottom of the pie on, and and then she would um, prick it. I thought, but I missed oh, the part the where she pricked it and then baked it. So I had raw dough. I pricked oh, the, no. the bottom dough. And, and I stuck the strawberry, the soupy strawberry thing in there. And <laughs> all the liquid went underneath the, the pie. Yes. And it was like, yes. oh, it was awful. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that was, that was, you saw some beautiful was, fresh strawberries, right, from Australia? Yeah, right. <laughs> that was oh. pretty bad. So I baked off. I, I backed off baking pies. <laughs> <laughs> So, no, I did make oh that. Goodness. How many layer cake was that I made, Rabbit? Uh, but that was a cake. It wasn't a pie. No, I'm talking about I did make a multi, one of the multi-layer um, cakes one, that she was, was talking about. There was one you made for Jay Brown. That's the one. It was something who, like 12 who, layers or something. She, she was a, she was a oh, friend of Anne. This, this lady was a friend, friend of Anne's, and she's somehow under the... In a conversation, she she declared that she had never had a birthday party. So, <laughs> so, Anne, so Anne proceeded to create a birthday party for her. Including this cake. cake. 
the cake that took me an entire day to make. You know, you make all these layers, and then you had to slice yes. them in half. And there was a different thing you put over, you know, in between the layers. Then, oh then you know goodness. what? You know what? Then you know what she did. You know what she did. I, I, I didn't. I, I don't think I got a piece to try even. But by the next morning, it was gone. She had, she had given, she had given the, the multi-layer cake away to friends, and I never got to taste. <laughs> well, you never got to taste that if you're homesteading. <laughs> well, Peter, Peter declared that um, probably a, a, a food that would give you pimples for a year. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh this book is delightful, story. as are you, uh, Heather Mubarak, and uh, I can't oh, wait you. to see what you're going to tackle next. Uh, listeners, this is called Stuffed, the Sandwich Cookie Book, and you will, if you look at it and you see these pictures, you're going to head for the kitchen. Pick, be sure you have the uh, your butter at the right temperature, and be sure you have you weigh your ingredients and that you test your oven for its exact heat point, and then go for it, because you have all the instructors you're ever going to need for, for and creative ideas for making these sandwich cookies. Well, Heather, congratulations. Much success in your uh, marketing of your book. And, uh, Thank I you can't so wait much. For you Thank to, you for having me on. Well, it was fun. <laughs> Very yeah, fun. I love to yeah. with you. Well, great. Well, thank you, and let us know when you come out with the next one. Absolutely. I will. Okay. Thank you so much.